We're going to talk about the Shin Shin Ming. We've talked about this before. We keep talking about it because it's great. It's considered, although this is argued about, it's considered to have been written by who we call the third ancestor, Sung San, and um, in the 6th century CE. And Sung San kind of occupies the place that connects the first two ancestors who are, who are um, considered the ones who brought and rooted Chan or Zen in China. And the fourth and fifth, who are the ones who are responsible for it becoming a monastic tradition. He's kind of the link between the two. So this poem, Xin Xin Ming, if we go by the way that it's understood, that it's from the third ancestor, then it it's, could be considered the first Zen poem. What is um, come together is, what's, is that the style, we're all chanting it, the style is no longer Indian. The style is very Chinese. It's very Taoist. And the, um, but it's Buddhist concepts woven into a Taoist language. A Buddhist frame that at this point has taken about 400 years to find its harmony with the Chinese tradition and really become Chinese Buddhism. We're still in that process in this country. We don't know what's happening. But um, we'll see what it looks like in a couple, 300 more years. But Xin Xin Ming, one Xin is translated as heart. I want to talk about that. One Xin is translated as faith. And, one, and Ming is inscription. So I'll say something about Ming first, because it's often... Um, the inscription or the verses of faith in heart or faith in mind. But Ming is not just kind of, oh, it's an inscription. It's an inscription that carries the meaning that it is a truth across all time. So sometimes this is talked about in Chinese as kind of inscription in the bones, in bone. And it has a particular meaning because back to 2000 BCE, Chinese spirituality was, um, at least in the courts, the record is that there would be, there would be fortune telling that would happen by cracking, burning and cracking bones. And then sages would read those cracks in order to... Um, tell the fortune of the of of empire is a little anachronistic but the empire and the leaders that cracking and burning of bones seems to actually go back to around 6500 BCE but the inscribing of it the written language into it that seems to be around 2000 BCE so this idea of something being inscribed into the bones that's a spiritual teaching 
is an old, by this point, a very old Chinese religious metaphor, reality. So Ming is this kind of inscription. What is, going to, what is being put down here is something that is for all the ages. So then that brings us to, and Shin as faith, that seems to be fairly straightforward, trust or faith in something, making something one's foundation. Shin that's translated as heart, we've talked about this many times, but for those of you who don't know, I'm going to talk about it again, because I think, I really feel that we cannot understand this deeply enough, because if we don't understand Shin, we do not understand Zazen. Shin is located here in the tradition, so the center of mind is here. But it's not simply like, a, uh, it's not a material thing that takes up space. And by the time it gets to the Buddhist writings, it's, it's pretty complicated because it's influenced by Taoism and it's influenced by Buddhism. What it comes to mean by the time it's in Buddhist texts like these is It is the place, so in the Chinese tradition, it is the place from which we know, the place from which we desire, the place from which all thought, all mental processes, all knowing comes from. Everything comes from Shin. There's this um, other word, Naotsu, which is um, thinking mind. That's what we're used to thinking about is Natsu is where everything comes from. We think stuff up and, and that, that, or at least dominant culture here. Natsu is not taken all that seriously. It's considered usually self-centered, short-sighted, um, not particularly anchored. To think wisely is to think from Shin. To know wisely is to know from Shin. In some ways, if we were to take that frame on some of our current problems, it's, it's pretty useful. So, by the time Buddhism... Now, there's a kind of eternalness to the notion of Shin in the, in the Chinese tradition that gets challenged when Buddhism comes. So we end up with this knowing, but by the time you get here, that knowing is, has infinite causes and conditions. It's not rooted in some self. It's not rooted in self-centeredness. It's the nexus of all of the, it's the, it's the knowing nexus of everything that makes me up. Everything that I am. The conditions of the world around me coming together and resulting in this being, and there is a place from which that is known. Place. I'm using place loosely. Um, there is a place from which that is known, and that's Shin. Right? We know we can, when everything quiets down, when Natsu, when the thinking mind, when desires, and this idea of desires calming down and clarifying Shin is actually in the Chinese tradition as much as in the Buddhist tradition. And that quieting down 
so that Shin can be clarified and wide. It gets confused by two things. Thinking, lots of thinking, and lots of desires. And again, this is in both traditions. Interestingly, they come together quite nicely because Meng Su and a lot of the Taoists have the same view that the Buddha did, which is thinking and desire seem to create some problems. And one of the, and the problems that they create are it either overly narrows the ability of Shin to, to know the world or it scatters it and fragments it in such a way that there's just no, um, it's neither broad nor still. And for it to be uh, harmonizing, it has to be both broad and still, which means the over-grasping or the over-focusing on views or the untrained scattering of it to just hop around from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. Those keep us from trusting in Shin. If that's going on, we can't trust. Because we're not treating Shin as actually the foundation. We're treating all of our desires and all of our thoughts as the foundation. And that results in confusion. That doesn't stop, really, until we give those up. And I think one of the things that the this poem wants to tell us, this teaching wants to tell us, is don't, don't treat Shin as a thing to be attained as an object. Just stop grasping your views. The heart of knowing, the heart of awake knowing, in some ways Shin, by the time you get to this poem, is almost the closest thing in the Indian tradition might be bodhicitta the awakened heart, something that is awake to all the causes and conditions that is making one up karmically, as well as dependent co-arising, as well as holding the aspiration to be being awake. When everything gets cleared, which is what we're doing in Zazen, we're letting things clear we're letting things quiet, we're letting the mind gather, then there is a knowing that allows us to see clearly. So, thinking from Shin, seeing from Shin, smelling from Shin, hearing from Shin, Everything is coming from here. We get caught here, and, 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 and um, you know, the, the, the dualistic mind in early Buddhism is talked about at length. It's not usually associated with here. In the Chinese tradition, it often is associated with here, like it is in, in the Western tradition. The thing probably, that the thing that those two cultures had in common, those societies had in common, that India didn't, was reading. There wasn't reading at the time of the Buddha. So in some ways, the dualistic mind, when we start reading, starts getting centered behind the eyeballs. 
right? Because that's where we're doing all of that reasoning and thinking and discerning. We become reading people. And reading people have a real tough time getting out of here. Reading people have a very tough time coming down into the body as a knowing event. So all this energy is balled up behind the eyes because we've done most of our work literarily. Our storytelling has been read. We don't even sit, we don't sit around fires and feel stories anymore, right? We read them. So we're not feeling the world with our body anymore. We're thinking the world through our eyes. And so that makes, that has made it very hard to drop down into Shin as the center of knowing. That's why Zen has a very ambivalent relationship to reading. It's not just because, oh, any study's terrible. Clearly that's not true. There's lots of things to read and study. But there is this ambivalence, and I feel that part of the reason that ambivalence is there is because what it does to the energy of the body, what it does to the way we understand what it is to know. So Shin, then, is the root of our lives. It's that which is at the base. It's bodhicitta, it's Buddha nature. Even if you go to the early Indian tradition, if you look at metta practice and all of these, the concentration is happening here. This is what the... And also, what's really important is citta is not one of the aggregates. It's not one of the problem areas that we need to worry about. Shin is not manas, and I'm just, for those of you who don't know these words, don't worry about it for a minute, but it's not the dualistic consciousness that the Buddha was saying, you got to clarify this, these are the things you're grasping. Chitta's not on that list. Shin, and then when we move to China, Shin is not on that list, right? Shin is not the problem. So when we're saying faith in Shin, it's not a faith in the mind that we're used to thinking about. It's faith in the nexus of all things arising as me. So for those of you who are familiar with Indra's net, we could think of Shin, one way of thinking of Shin or understanding Shin is that it is the reflective surface of the pearl. It is that which is reflecting the whole of life from its position. It's reflecting the whole of the cosmos from its position, from its place. It's Buddha, when clarified when all the scaffolding we build around it gets slowly dismantled and it can be known and we can live from there. So this is kind of an instruction manual of how to, <laughs> how to clarify it. It tells us right out of the gate, the supreme 
way is not difficult if only you don't pick and choose. This is the problem. If thinking and desire are the things that can cloud shin, then picking and choosing through thinking and desire are going to be the thing that keep us confused. This is why we sit zazen, and if you want to, you can, I know shin shin means not in some of the books, but if you want to look at it, feel free, if you have it. Um, there's no need, but you're welcome to. Um, not loving and not hating. I'm going to go through some lines quickly, and then I'm going to focus on some. Neither love nor hate, and you will clearly understand. Be off by a hair, and you are, a, you are as far apart as heaven from earth. Now this off by a hair is not that we don't have our discernment exactly right. Right? Shin is that with, within, I'm using that in quotations, within us that knows suchness. That knows the non-dual arising of the dependently co-arisen world, which is empty of any boundaries. It's Shin that knows that. It's Shin that realizes that. And so, if we, off by a hair, is... If we project onto that any separation, a hair of separation, it's gone. If you want it to appear, be neither for nor against, for and against opposing each other, this is the mind's disease. This is Shin's disease. For and against opposing each other, this is the mind's disease without recognizing the mysterious principle, suchness, it is useless to practice quietude. It is useless to sit zazen if we don't understand that we are not trying to get something we will someday know. If we think what we're doing is attaining something that we're going to hold for our own at some point, sitting will get us nowhere, except more confusion. If we don't understand that it is mysterious, that we will never know it, that there is no object to know, there is no view that is right, there is no truth that grounds us, If we don't know that at the base, then all of this is going to just lead us. It's just going to send the rabbit running forever. It'll just have grander and grander things to chase. The way is perfect like great space, without lack, without excess. Because of grasping and rejecting, you cannot attain it. Making this point fairly clearly... Do not pursue conditioned existence. Do not abide in acceptance of emptiness. So this is, I'll just say quickly, because this, this is going to turn the poem toward emptiness. Not grasping conditioned existence or not grasping emptiness, I'll say grasping here, just simply means this, is that, you know, it was clear the Buddha said, don't grasp 
the mind, meaning don't grasp the contents or shape of the mind of perception ever. If you grasp any of those details, our thoughts, our perceptions, our views, etc., it's going to cause dukkha. Basic Buddhism. The witnessing, realization, seeing, arising of emptiness, for a moment, wipes out all of that discernment, all of those conditions. It just becomes the cores and the boundaries vanish. We see through them. And there's a problem. We know this problem. Zen warns us about it over and over again as we grab onto that and then make that a thing and we keep trying to get back to it. Right? I'm going to have that experience again. That's the truth. We turn emptiness into a truth. We turn emptiness into a higher realized something. And when that happens... we're more confused, really, than grasping our conditioned existence, grasping the relative details of our lives. In oneness and equality, confusion vanishes of itself. Now, this is where I want um, to start looking at it. Stop activity and return to stillness, and stillness will be ever more active. So the activity of the mind, this is, uh, this is our understanding of zazen. Right? This is a, sim- a kind of simply, simple phrase that's a little confusing, but powerful. Stop activity and return to stillness, and that stillness will be more active. So we stop the grasping activity of the mind. We give up the grasping activity of the mind, and we become still. But when that stillness happens, when that deep stillness happens that isn't grasping the mind, what then is realized is that this life is the dynamic interactivity of everything. And so that stillness becomes more active because it becomes the dynamic whole of all that is. But realizing the dynamic whole of all that is with the body, with Shin, cannot happen if this is active, if it's grabbing onto everything all the time. This has to quiet and then life is there. Life becomes present. Life becomes everything that is. We become everything that is life from a particular location within it. Only stagnating in duality. How can you recognize oneness? If you fail to penetrate oneness, both places lose their function. I'm skipping those for a moment. And I am going to go down where I want to focus for this retreat. We're all taking up different lines we like. Um, Laura, myself, and Ian. So we'll jump around a little bit. But when it says, cut off talking and thinking, and there is nowhere you cannot penetrate, it's the talking and thinking mind. Because once that kind of discernment falls away, then you're everywhere. There's nothing that's not penetrated. But, Here's where we make the mistake. Um, One moment of reversing the light is greater than the previous emptiness. One moment of reversing the light 
is greater than the previous emptiness. Reversing the light is looking. It is Shin being conscious of who we are, of what's arising, of what's going on. It is the clarity of the witness of our being. In this moment, as it is, no matter what's arising, whether we like it or not, don't like it, we just went through a whole bunch of stuff about it, doesn't matter what you like or dislike, right? Doesn't matter if you like or dislike what's happening. That is not relevant. It's entirely, I don't know how to say this more emphatically, it's entirely irrelevant to your awakening. It is irrelevant whether you like what's coming up as you or don't like what's coming up as you. Does not matter. If you have the strongest dislike in the world, then we have curiosity about why I dislike something so much. Not I'm going to turn away from it, I'm going to ignore it, or not pay attention to it, or go find the comfortable thing that I'm confident is awakening. Surely that comfortable thing is what's awakening. No, it doesn't matter. So, at what it's pointing to in this line is, there may be a realization of the insubstantiality of all things. That may come up at some point. You may have, forget emptiness even, tons of insights may happen about different things. And when those insights happen, there may be ease. It may make things temporarily quite comfortable, even happy. And what it is saying is, Did I lose it? I lost it. One moment of reversing the light. One moment of being in this moment is greater than the previous emptiness. Now that means, even if this moment is terrible, like it's the most awful thing you're feeling in the world, you would rather be anywhere but in this damn zendo. If we're awake with it, it is more important than the fact that yesterday you had the most sublime experience and insight that you've ever had, because that is a memory and worthless. And the only thing that it is now is something to grasp. The only thing it is now is something to cause confusion. That's all it is. No matter how brilliant it was, it is nothing more than confusion now. The only thing that is awake, awake now is now. You're where you've always been, which is right here. That is never going to change. We have sophisticated psychological dances to get out of that. Seven days of sitting and you're going to see how those work. <laughs> they are not going to get you out of this. Um, so we don't get out of it. The previous emptiness, this is the beauty, okay? So one moment of reversing the light is greater than the previous emptiness. The previous emptiness is transformed. If this moment were completely caught up in our karma and we're aware of it, the, any insight that happened prior to that moment is transformed in that awakeness. The rubber hits the road. It's utilized. 
it becomes meaningful, it becomes a part of our lives, it starts to be integrated. We have no choice in how that integration happens. We really have no choice. Anybody who's done this for a while is really, really clear that they never chose when the insights happened and they never chose how long it took for the insights to integrate. It just does what it does. And the sooner that we can step back and simply say, this is the life, this is my karmic life and this is what's unfolding. And I'm gonna to commit to the practice over and over. I'm gonna to commit to, to clarifying shin, stilling shin, allowing it to spread, allowing myself to come from it, my words to come from it, my voice to come from there, everything to come from there, that I recommit to that over and over and over again. And then your karma's gonna do what it's gonna do. It's just gonna unfold the way it unfolds. And it will become free only through our recommitment. We become free only through our recommitment. That's the only way we become free. We recommit to the practice over and over and over again, and that's what results in freedom. We've heard this before, but we have to keep saying it <laughs> because it's hard to keep recommitting. So the previous emptiness is transformed. It was all a product of deluded views anyway. Now here is maybe the most important line for me in this entire thing. No need to seek the real, just extinguish your views. Any desire to find the ultimate truth as like some spiritual smorgasbord from which we're going to be able to eat eternally is a waste of time. Right? That there is some ultimate out there that I'm going to be able to, that's going to be the real thing, and I'm going to grab that real thing and then I'm done. I don't have to worry about anything anymore. I can take this person that I secretly dislike and throw them over my shoulder and be done with them and just hang out in the ultimate. And what it is saying, clear as a bell, is don't do that. Don't go after something you feel is more real than this moment. There is no thing more real. There's no moment behind this moment. There is no more real truth behind this moment. There is this moment. Now what this moment isn't is me separate from this moment. That's confusion. But this moment is just this. So then there is this don't seek the real. There's no need to do that. Just look at your views and the way you grasp your views. That's all you have to do. Look at all the ways we grasp our views. This, in my summation, this seems to never end. But, um, but to return to, oh, I'm grasping that perspective, I'm grasping that perspective. I know who that person is. I know what they did. They did this. This is what it looked like. Their view's wrong. My view's right. On and on and on. That is the thing that is, um, that is what's disallowing freedom. We trick ourselves over and over into believing we are going to get to freedom by being right. 
This is the biggest self-trick there is, is I'm going to get to freedom by being right. Right about the Dharma, right about me, right about who I am, all of this. And it's not. Shinshin Ming is saying really clearly, that is not going to be your gate. We'll do that until we're done, and then we'll stop. Do not abide in dualistic views. Take care not to seek after them. As soon as there is right and wrong, the mind is scattered and lost. The two, or the dualistic, or the discerned, or the right and wrong, comes from wholeness, comes from the one. But don't even keep the one. Even if you realize that, don't grab onto the one. Don't grab onto wholeness. I'm going to take a little skip, and I'm going to go to the line. The subject is extinguished with the object. The object sinks away with the subject. Object is object because of the subject. Subject is subject because of the object. This is the mind that the Buddha warned us about. Chit is good, but this is the mind that the Buddha warned us about. The Buddha warned us about the mind that says, I am here, you are there. And not only I am here and you are there, but the kind of person you are, this is the thing, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the teachings, is the object that arises. We, what we like to believe is the subject is constant. It's just sitting here permanently. It's me. It has opinions. It's clear. It's at the center of the universe. And... Um, Everything else might be impermanent and flickering about. But the two things that are not are me and my opinion of other people. <laughs> Those seem to be constant, right? So, but what this is saying, and what Buddhism has said from the beginning is, if you look really, really closely, the view of what is outside of you rises with the subject that is aligned with that view. In other words, if I have an opinion of you, there is a subject that arises in that moment that has that opinion. It's not that the subject is constant and it happens to be having an opinion at that moment. It's the very being that is made up of that opinion rises, arises with the object that is the focus of the opinion. I'm flickering all the time. I have an opinion of somebody, and now there's a Greg that has that opinion. It's not going to be the same person as 10 minutes from now who's going to arise with a different opinion and a different opinion and a different opinion. There is no constant being. There is no constant subject. The subject is flickering with the objects. It's a different person, different person. But, the, but what is kind of terrifying about this is that if we really, it's hard to, it's hard to see that for a few reasons. One is, the obvious one is, then we're impermanent. Then this constant self we put so much into is um, kind of undermined. But maybe even scarier is, then what's truth? 
at that moment. If my opinions about the world are arising, just, if they're just arising, if I'm just dividing things in, okay, I have an opinion of you, and now there's a self that believes it, that falls away, there's another opinion, self that believes it, okay, so what is the thing I can rely on? What is the truth I can rely on? And the Shin Shin Ming is basically saying none. Not in terms of views. And this is why I think there is such a, for, to go all back to the beginning, this idea of the problem with us readers, or people who are really here, is that the way we know is through views. That's the way we know. And without hardening around views, we actually don't know how to know. It isn't that we just um, have trouble giving up views. We don't know how to know the world without views. We don't know how to know the world without that. And that is what's really, I feel, so radical about what Zen is trying to communicate. Which is you don't know the world, you have to quiet so far down that you know the world from here. That you know everything from here. And this doesn't need views. Because it just knows connection. It just knows that activity is arising in the dance between us in any given moment. And like any dance, the way you do it is not thinking the rules but being present with the movement. And so we have to be present with the movement. We have to be present with the dance of each other, with each other. We have to have a, a heart that is wide enough and unscattered and able to um, be everyone and feel the movement of others moving through us. When we know from here, I couldn't, you can't even snap these glasses. Because why? Why would you destroy something? Now there's, there's, this can destroy anything. But from here, there's too much, it's not a non-dual way of knowing. And that's why, for me, there's such a strong connection between the three characters that make up the title of this name, uh, of this poem, which is faith, shin, I don't even want to translate, an inscription that is beyond all time. Because it's presenting what can be trusted as a foundation. And not trusted as a foundation because it's a thing. It's not a thing. It can't be found, can't be pointed to. Shin can't really be pointed to. We can kind of feel it here. 
But it's a dynamic interconnection that is arising as me all of the time, so it can never be pinned down. And it's not just arising as me, it's all of you arising as me. It's these fans, it's everything arising as me right now. So in a minute, it's going to be entirely different. In a second, it's going to be entirely different. There's no way to know what word is going to come next. When we're fully in shin, we don't know what's going to happen. We have no idea what's going to happen. And to let the body really rest in just not knowing what's going to happen. Later on, Matsu says, Shin is Buddha. He just goes like this. That in the end, the knowing that is Shin is Buddha. all of the other stuff quieting down and letting this come. Now there is, um, I don't know what time it is, or when I'm supposed to stop. I stop at 12? 12, thank you. Um, Okay, good. So then I'll just say this. We're already doing what needs to be done. We're already setting the body still and letting things quiet. We're already allowing ourselves to look at the mind. Is it going to get tough sometimes? Yep. Are we going to want to shake everything up? Yes. Are we going to want to run sometimes? Yes. Is it going to be blissful sometimes? Yeah. None of that matters. It doesn't matter because the... This is Dogen. What is happening to us is so far beyond our tiny little perceptual ability to see. We are all transforming because of each other. You are not. You're 100% accountable for your practice. Each of us are 100% accountable for our practice, and none of us are doing it. None of us are doing our practice. None of us. So just keep coming back and keep coming back and let, the, let this just fall down into the body. Let all the thinking and judging and discerning just fall down into the body, just fall down into the earth. We don't need to do it. There's nothing happening here. You're sitting in a round room. Like literally nothing's happening. You don't need to think about a thing right now. Nothing is going to harm you right now. Now, with, our, with, with various pasts, that's hard to imagine. And I get that. I'm not in any way making light of how painful many lives have been. But right now, on this cushion, with these people around you, you can just let the thinking go. Just let the mind quiet. You have the whole valley and the mountains and the earth and the life and everything around here, the wind, it's all caring for us. We can just let it go. And maybe take a first step in trusting in the way that 
the third ancestor is asking us to trust. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.